Amen. I just love it when we come to that part. I think there's no way to, a better way to remember Christ on his throne than through the singing of that song. So thank you so much for that this morning. Well, we're 10 days away from the big day. I don't know if that scares you or not. So uh, I hope that you have hauled out all the holly that you're going to do. I, I think there's a few things left to do at our house that maybe I'll, it's just because I want to look at them. I don't know if you're like that. You have certain things that don't mean anything to anybody else, but it's like, I just want to see that. You know, at my, uh, maybe it's at, you know, family members' houses you go to. If you go home to your parents or grandparents and kind of favorite Christmas decor there. Uh, my mother still puts up the tree downstairs with all the family ornaments that we grew up with. And on there's this silver ball that's got like this felt figure on it. And she, it's an ornament she made in second grade. And so it means nothing to anybody else but us. And we stare at it and think how beautiful it is. But, uh... I think that my favorite Christmas item when I was growing up around the house was my mother's um, nativity scene. And um, I used, I, you know, as a child, I actually remember just spending so much time organizing that thing, setting it up, and then I'd come back the next day and redo it. I don't know if that just means that I didn't have a lot to play with in the house when it was cold outside, but I played with the nativity scene. And, you know, so we'd put the manger right in the center of the stable. And then you'd get Mary as close as you could to where the manger was. And then you'd have to figure out which one was Joseph. Because this could be a shepherd or this could be Joseph. And once you did, you took, you put it there. And then I'd put the donkey and the oxen right in the back. Kind of to fill up the back of the stable. And, and then you found the shepherds. And uh, one of them had the sh sheep on his shoulders. And then there were two other sheep that you could actually move separately. And so I'd place them where I liked them. And in the stable, my mother's stable that she had, it had like a raised platform with a ladder going up to it. And I like to put one of the sheep right there because I thought, you know, how did that sheep get up there? Everybody's going to wonder. But, you know, and I put it there. And then, of course, because we like to condense uh, the early years of Jesus' life into one night that we have the uh, wise men who were also in our nativity scene. And so there's three Asian-looking fellas who are dressed with, and they have their gifts, and, and you line them up, you know, and which one do you want to go first kind of thing. And then there was one item left, and it was the angel, right? And I always struggled with that, where to put the angel, because I wanted it right on top. You know, in the stable, it had this, you know, this peak on it. I would, like, try to balance it there and then, you know, catch it. And then I would set it on the edge. I just really wanted it on top because I felt like, you know, the angels had to be in the sky. So right here, how can I do that? But, of course, couldn't make it work. So I'd put it right in the back, centered, just right behind the manger, looking down on baby Jesus. Well, whenever, um, years later, my mother got a different nativity scene. She still has that one. But the one she primarily displays has an angel that's like a Christmas ornament. It has a hook on the top so you can kind of suspend it in the air. And so I, I, I like that one a little bit better because of that. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about, uh, focused on really the angels of the nativity. Uh, as we looked at Luke's account of the nativity, we looked at the angelic message that the, uh, was brought to Zacharias in the temple. Last week, uh, Philip preached and uh, brought a message about the angel's message to Mary, about the baby that she was carrying. And this week, we're going to look at the angel's message to the shepherds who are there in the fields of Bethlehem. Angels are mentioned a lot in the scriptures. You can't escape them. At least 275 times, you'll see angels mentioned in your Bible. But they really re remain a mysterious thing. We, we, we only best, I guess, understand them in the role that they play in the passage of Scripture we're reading. But beyond that, it gets a little bit 
uh, confusing. There's a lot of interest, though, I would say culturally about angels. You know, there are movies and TV shows that involve angels. Uh, there's songs that are written about angels, um, and uh, they, they never get it right, you know. But it's, I think the idea is that it's divine, but it's not God. So it's like we can deal with the spiritual without having to deal with God. And so the, cultural, uh, the culture kind of likes to focus on angels um, in, in conversations. It kind of takes us a little bit spiritual without having to talk about God. But I also think um, that we get confused about it in the church as well. What are angels? Who are they? What do they do? And so I thought it would be important before we get to the text to really consider that for a second. You know, to consider what the angel is. First of all, it's important to say that angels are not people. They are not Christians who died and now have gone to heaven and become angels. The scriptures don't describe that, uh, angels as that. The scriptures describe angels as uh, beings created by God for a specific purpose as angels. So he creates humans, he creates lions, and he also creates angels. And so that's who they are. They're meant to be angels. And they're servants of God, and they're meant to fulfill certain roles. Our focus over the last couple weeks has been the role of serving as a messenger for God to mankind. But he's created them in different ways. In fact, Ezekiel speaks of specific angels, the cherubim. And it describes them, and they were, served a certain function. Um, in Isaiah and in Revelation, we read about the seraphim, who are specific types of angels that accomplish different things. There are two angels that are given names that we know of. We know of Michael the archangel, so we know that that's the name of the archangel, is, um, and we assume it's one, and it's Michael. And there's another one named Gabriel. And, of course, that's the angel who showed up to speak to Zacharias. He's the angel that showed up to speak to Mary. Some suspect he's the same angel that showed up to speak to the shepherds, but that's not made clear. Second thing is, angels are not figures to be worshipped. They're divine, they're spiritual, but they're not to be, be worshipped. They are designed to give worship to God. They're created to point people towards God. And in fact, I think angels help us to get a better understanding of God. We understand his power and his strength because we hear about the angel armies that he commands. You know, we understand a little bit more about his, um, his loving kindness, his wisdom, because of the way that he utilizes angels. They serve as extensions of God to minister to people. That's what angels do. An angel who receives worship rather than give worship is a fallen angel. Of course, Lucifer was an angel. But rather than giving worship to God, he reserved worship for himself. And we know him as Satan, the fallen angel. Many angels followed with him to receive worship or to follow Lucifer. To, and, and so that's what we know them as. So today we're going to look at the angel who shows himself at the pastures of Bethlehem to provide um, the most epic birth announcement ever. I know there's a lot of focus on gender reveals nowadays. They do not compare to this birth announcement that happens in Bethlehem with the angels that day. So we're going to be in Luke 2. This is the most well-known passage in all of Luke's gospel. And the time being described in this passage, um, Caesar Augustus was the most powerful figure in the world. He could force people in far-off countries to, to travel distances just by lifting his finger. But when God sent his angels to make, a mess, to make an announcement, it was not uh, an, an announcement about Caesar and about his power and what he has come to do. 
but it was about the birth of Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. So Luke 2, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 12. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census to be, uh, be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census in his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The good news of Jesus coming into the world is truly a message of great joy for all people. The gospel message that's contained in this passage of Scripture should inspire joy to show up in every area of your lives. And so you ask, well, in what circumstances uh, do we see joy in our lives? Well, the joy that we experience by living in the Spirit, by walking in the Spirit, is enough to sustain us in the hustle and bustle, through the setbacks of life, and also as we reflect on the coming of God's kingdom. So we're going to look first at joy in the hustle and bustle. Verse 1 says, in those days. That's a very imprecise description of time. Now people argue over what year Jesus was born, or what time of year, or what date, or day, um, whatever it is. Um, I would say that's not the most critical information out there. What we do know, and what I think this verse reminds us of, is that it all takes place under God's sovereignty. So when God was ready for things to move, he allowed Caesar to issue his decree. That's how I think it happened. So if you were to ask anyone in the ancient world, is there anybody more powerful, more important than uh, Caesar Augustus, there would be this resounding, no, there's, there's not. Caesar was top of the heap. He was the ruler of the inhabited earth. He was the leader over the Roman Empire, which practically contained everybody where there was somebody that lived. But the scene we're looking at is not in Caesar's palace in Rome. We're in a small Judean village. Nevertheless, the people of this region are affected by what Caesar says in Rome. So Caesar lets out a decree, and the decree is that there is a census to be taken. Now, there are a lot of ancient records that tell us about the censuses that were taken in the Roman Empire. Many scholars believe it happened every 14 years, that there would be this census that was taken uh, there for a long period of time. The purpose was to raise taxes. It's to find out who, who all is out there and how much money can we get from them. So in order to accomplish this census, verse 3 tells us that they were instructed to go home to their own city. 
Now, of course, that's not the city they lived in. That's their ancestral home. That's why we're dealing with the, the move that's about to take place among Joseph and Mary. So it would be wherever your ancestral home is. So for me, I'd head home to East Tennessee. That's where I was born. That's where my parents were born and their parents. And so that's what was to happen. Joseph enters the scene here um, uh, in verse 4. And it says he went up from Galilee. That does not mean he travels north. Uh, rather, he's going south, but he's climbing in altitude to get there. And he's going to this ancient city, the city of David, known as the, city of, uh, known as the town of Bethlehem. This is a real small village that's south of Jerusalem. It was the hometown for King David. So when all of a sudden David, who's just a shepherd boy, gets anointed as king by Samuel, it takes place in Bethlehem. Because this is where he was from. Most people associate Jerusalem as this, with David, as the city of David, because that's the city he ruled and reigned from. But David was from Bethlehem. So Luke tells us Joseph is traveling with Mary, who at this point is his fiance. We're not told why she travels with him. It could have been that that was part of the decree, right? Is that the whole family, you all have to go. I want to know everybody in the family that's there. Um, it could have been that she knew that she was going to deliver, and she wanted to do that with Joseph uh, around. Or, you know, she did know she was carrying the Son of God. And she perhaps would have known the, the, the prophecy that said the Messiah is going to come from, be born in Bethlehem. And maybe she said, well, if you're going to Bethlehem, now would be a great time, you know. I, we don't really know, but we know she traveled with him. And... Um, uh, so she, she went with him, and they are essentially married. It's just they've not consummated the relationship. And so she's traveling with Joseph. It's a very long journey, over hill, over dale, that kind of thing. Maybe that's why we celebrate Christmas, by traveling, you know, is because of what they did. And they're headed to the town of Bethlehem. And all I can think about is how miserable the trip sounds. You know, I, I'm sure that we're coming to that time of year, many of you are already dreading that you've got to travel. Because all that packing you've got to do, uh, you've got to get everything ready. Some of you have to fly, and nobody really enjoys that anymore because of all the security checks and no leg room, and uh, you've got to pay for the drinks and the peanuts now or whatever it might be. And uh, so, you know, some of you got to do that, and you're thinking, gosh, getting all you, you, and then delays, you know, and the, the, the crew doesn't show up, whatever it might be. And then others of you, maybe a little step worse, is you've got to travel long distance in cars with loud children, right? And... Um, you're thinking, I might take an airplane. <laughs> but um, because but you, you don't only have to fit the kids in there and you in there, you also got to fit all the luggage and then like bedding and things like that. And you're just packed in there and it's just a, an uncomfortable thing. Traveling can get so complicated. But we do it at Christmas because, you know, we, we've got to go see people. Well, think about Mary. She's essentially nine months pregnant, 40 weeks pregnant. She's forced on a journey to Bethlehem. Do you think she was uncomfortable? I've never been pregnant before, but my wife has. And I can tell you, she was uncomfortable. <laughs> and you know, our version of uncomfortable is no leg room, right? Our version of uncomfortable is we can't get the AC quite set right. You know, the, the, the windows up makes everything stuffy. It's a whole other thing for her. And you're thinking, did she just, was she just happy through it all? Did she keep a smile on her face? Well, I don't think so, you know? I, but you think, but she's carrying Jesus, and she knows that. I mean, surely she's just smiling through it all. It's worth it. It's worth it. But yet she's human, just like you and just like me. And so I'm sure she's thinking, yeah, it's worth it. But could we just done this here? Do we have to go there is kind of the thought. So she probably got frustrated over the smell 
You know, I'm sure it wasn't comfortable with a donkey and, you know, long hours, no AC, no heat, whatever it was she was looking for. No chairs that reclined or seats that reclined. And here's the point I want to make. The joy that God supplies can carry us through busy and demanding situations. Doesn't mean we have to be happy all the time, but it can sustain us through it. We all deal with frustrating circumstances. I know that this year can be exciting, but it can also be a frustrating time of year because it puts so much demands on you. A lot of times it's things you have no control over. I'm sure that Mary did not really want to travel to Bethlehem under the circumstances. I'm sure Joseph didn't either. But in the middle of hustle and bustle of life, not just this time of year, but all the time, whenever all of a sudden you deal with unmet expectations, you get curveballs thrown your way, divine joy can sustain us. It doesn't mean we smile when the tire goes flat. It doesn't mean that we smile when our flight gets delayed. But we can know in the middle of that moment that God is in control. Nothing falls outside of his sovereign plan. Not even a census that's to be taken of the Roman world. And the truth is, from one moment to the next, we don't know what God's up to. Caesar thought he was in control. He thought, I'm the one who wanted this census. I'm sure that Mary and Joseph thought about their future and they didn't really think about this. But they thought, well, you know what? We're probably in control of what's going to happen. But at the first Christmas, we see God orchestrating the most miraculous moment. And he's sovereign over it all, over Caesar's decree. He's sovereign over Mary and Joseph's future. And he's at the helm, although it kind of looks a little bit chaotic. And perhaps, although it sounds a little less than ideal. But true joy comes from trusting that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you believe that, then it can produce joy in the midst of hustle and bustle of life. Even when life's confusing, we're to trust that God's in control and he supplies joy to sustain us. So let's look now at verses 6 and 7 of experiencing joy and setbacks. Verse 6 tells us, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So it's time for the baby to be be delivered. Um, Now, we don't know exactly when. It could have been that just like we imagine the story that, that, you know, Joseph pulls up with the donkey and Mary's on the back and she's about to go into labor. And he's looking for a place and there's some cranky innkeeper who points him, we ain't got room, we ain't got room. Or it could have been that they had been there for a day. And all of a sudden, it's just, we don't know. All we know is, about that time, she's ready to deliver. Verse 7 says, she delivers her firstborn son, then swaddles him just like mothers today might do the same thing. She lays him in a manger. Now, we know this. This is a feeding trough. There's no room in the inn, so she has to find some place, and she goes to a stable of some sort, a place where animals are, and there's a feeding trough. Now, we like to glamorize the manger. But that's a gross thing. And no mother would want to lay their baby there. So I'm sure Mary's doing her best to try to clean things up, straighten things up. It is a lowly place for any baby to lay, but especially the king of kings. And what this whole action shows us is that Jesus is strategically climbing down the ladder of humanity. Paul describes it this way in Philippians 2. Speaking of Jesus, who although Jesus existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So from the very beginning, we see him doing this. One of the things I'm learning is that divine joy favors the lowly. We think of joy as something you get whenever you achieve great things and maybe things go your way or you can buy something new. But divine joy seems to follow the humble. And I think that's an important statement because there are many people believe, even people within Christianity, that following Christ will cause the cards to fall your way so that you experience nothing but material blessing. That's not biblical. You think that the good news is that God wants to make you prosper, prosper with material, in material ways. So if that's true, then that means joy really comes out of acquiring. Joy really comes out of, you know, the moment whenever you gain or you find yourself on top. But Jesus teaches and models that the last shall be first. And true joy is present when the last is first. I grew up in a very competitive family. Every time we get together with the extended family, it involves some sort of game, cards. But as we're getting the game ready, we start celebrating all the big wins in the past. You know, you remember that time I beat y'all? You know, that kind of thing. That's, Rachel says every time we get together, we tell the same stories. And it's about the big victories of the games from days past. Well, I'm passing that down to my family. My, my kids are extremely competitive. I know that. So I find myself having to remind them that the last shall be first. Now, if you have a competitive streak in you, you know what this is like. So then you start competing about being last, you know? And so it's like, time to buckle seatbelts, and my kids are like, at the very side, I'm the last one, I'm first, you know, kind of thing. Well, when Jesus began to minister in the world, he flipped the values of the world upside down. Those who are on top find themselves on bottom. The first or last, the last shall be first in the kingdom of God. Now, this wasn't just for others. That included him. He's the true top of the heap, and he finds himself in a manger. He traded heaven for a feeding trough. That's kind of how it panned out. Well, if you feel like everything is working out for the good of everyone else and never for you, and that you have nothing to be joyful over, and if you're just waiting for your big break, then I would encourage you to focus at the center of that nativity scene where the manger is. We get nostalgic about it. But the image shows us that God chose to get in the worst of circumstances. And that means we might be drawn there too. Our joy does not come from getting ahead or when the chips fall in our way. True joy comes when you are obedient to the life God calls you to. True joy leads you to be happy even if you're last. So divine joy is not just available when you're on the bot- at, the, you know, at the bottom of the barrel. But it tends to be especially present in setbacks and low points. But the true message of today is that there is joy declared by the angels at the coming of Christ. So verse 8, there's this dramatic scene change. We leave the stable. We're taken out to the uh, the fields of Bethlehem where there are these shepherds that are gathered. Uh, They're watching over their flock by night. Um, So this is the time of year when they would have stayed all night with the flock. And uh, now when we think of shepherds, a lot of times we treat them as the, mo- the, the lowest of the low, the biggest outcasts among the, the culture of that day. But I'm not sure that's exactly right. What I do think is that the shepherd is the, about as average Joe as you could get. I think that's what we find here. The most average, you know, no kind of inside track, just average people out in the fields and People that other people overlook, but not God. 
They were a humble part of society, everyday people with no real leverage. But God notices them, and he sends a messenger. Verse 9 says, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. I hope you get the idea of how startling that is. That this divine being all of a sudden just appears. Um, and we, we know that had to be, you know, I mean, shepherds were brave, right? I mean, they went after predators. But now this angel is a totally different thing. And we also know that God's manifest presence is seen there. It says that his glory shone round about them. So it's an overwhelming experience. And just like the angels regularly do, this one says, don't be afraid. Offers this word of encouragement or comfort. And then the angel gives a reason not to fear. He says, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. This phrase, good news, is of course one of the most critical phrases in all of Christianity. The angels declare it here. The shepherd is not bringing, I mean, the, the angel's not bringing bad news. It's not bringing a word of judgment. His message is going to spark joy for everybody, for all people. And he says, for today, well, this is um, a, a key word here, I would say, because it's marking the dawn of the messianic age. In the city of David, so that means the dots start to connect. They say, well, David was anointed king here. Is God now anointing another king who will come in the likeness of him to restore the glories of Israel? And he says, there has been born for you. And I love it, it's just so personal. This isn't born for others. It's not born for the elites, born for you. And then he gives three descriptors of who's been born. A savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, we kind of lump those three things together, but they, they have different meanings. The Savior is, means that he's a deliverer. God recognizes that mankind needs deliverance, and so he's sending this divine deliverance in the form of this baby. So a Savior who is Christ, Christ means the anointed king. This is the Messiah that's being born. So David is anointed somewhere in a, out here, and now all of a sudden... Jesus, the babe, is the anointed king who's coming. And then he says, a savior who is Christ the Lord. That means he's master. He's called Lord because he has all authority. So the baby born, being born that day was the anointed king who will bring deliverance with absolute authority. You know, when somebody tells me news that I'm supposed to pass along to my wife, um, I'll pass the news along. She'll say, well, what about this? And I'll say, well, I don't know. They didn't say. What did you ask them? No, I didn't ask. Well, why didn't you ask? Did you ask about this? No, I, I just didn't even think to ask. They told me information. I'm relaying it to you. Well, you should have asked that, you know. That's just, I, I'm sure y'all have never had this experience, men, but that's kind of how it works for me. I think the angel anticipated these men need to be told what they don't know to ask. So he says, you need to go look. And the way that you're going to find this baby is, and he gives these clues. So in case there's many babies born in Bethlehem, this one's going to be wrapped, swaddled, and lying in a manger. So surely there's only one of those. And so once again, this in moment is incredibly personal. A sign for you. So go find him. Most of you know that I'm, um, I'm a Christmas music junkie. I start early. I like most of it. It's probably weird, but hopefully you all accept me for who I am. And I have a few favorites, and some of them are the same favorites you have, but I have one song that I really like. My kids know it because it's on a kid's Christmas album I listen to that you've probably never heard before. The song's called Shepherd Dad, and it's a real fun song, upbeat, um, jazzy, 
But for me, it, it makes me a little bit emotional uh, because it tells a story about a shepherd dad who's in the fields when the angel shows up and his son is with him training to be a shepherd, right? And so the angel declares what's happened. So they head off to go find the baby and the shepherd's son says to shepherd dad, can I go with you, please? And he says, no, you stay here and watch the sheep. So they head off in Bethlehem and there they find the baby in the manger and the song says, one look in the manger and a shepherd turned and ran. And it says he ran through the streets, back to the fields where watching sheep, he found his shepherd's son. And then he scooped him up on his back and he says, hold on tight because our Savior is born tonight. The good news of great joy is a message that has to be shared. We can't keep it for ourselves. There's no better news that Jesus has come to rescue us. Now, we'll tell all kinds of other great stories. But the one that trumps it all is that Jesus has come, and he's come for you. It's always an appropriate message, and it's always an urgent message. It's the story that Jesus has come into the world to deliver us, to save us of our sins, to make peace between God and man. And the peace comes at a price, but y'all, the bargain is tipped in your direction. Because he says, I'll give my son, he'll die on the cross, he shed his blood. Just believe it, just receive it. That's all you have to do. Have you made peace with God? If you've not, I can't think of a better time than now. Especially, I think the season of Christmas is an incredible backdrop for that. Well, Christmas is a season of joy. Over the last three weeks, we've looked at the messages of angels that are part of the Christmas story. The angel uh, that came to Zacharias gave him a message of hope because God had, was going to keep his promise. The angel that shows to Mary brings a message of love because God loved the world so much he'd send his son. And to the shepherd, he brings a message of joy. I think that much of what we do at Christmas, you know, causes our hearts to leap a little bit with joy because of all the sights, the sounds, the smells, the experiences. But it can also wear you out. Well, let me say to you this. Don't miss out on the joy of this season. Because it's more than traditions. It's more than memories. It's more than just a celebration. The real joy is that Jesus truly came. At a particular moment in history, in a particular place, God sent his son. And the good news of Christ's coming inspires joy to show up in every area of your life. He loved you enough to come rescue you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to be here together. Now, Lord, we pray that you would move among us. God, that you would speak to our hearts and that we would respond. Thank you for sending your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If God's working in your heart today, maybe it's to respond to the message of being at peace with God. Perhaps it's to join in the, ch the church membership, following believers' baptism. Maybe you just need a, a time, moment with the Lord in prayer. And then I'm going to invite you to respond. We have an invitation. And so the choir is going to sing, if God's working in your heart, say yes to him today. Say yes. So you stand as our choir sings. I'll be down front. You respond.
I am so glad that you're here. It really is the most wonderful time of the year. And uh, this weekend has been incredible here as we have hosted so many folks from our community, so many of your friends, people from faraway places for the uh, Christmas pageant. If you haven't seen it, I'm just, I, I hope you have a ticket for this afternoon. It really, it's not impressive, it's moving. Uh, because of the story that's being shared, and I think it just, uh, you know, so much work. So, Mr. Steve, and to all of y'all, thank you for all of the hard work you've put into it. It's been incredible uh, to be a part of. I know last week while I was away, uh, Steve had Ryan Dupree come down here so, uh, to let you know about the uh, uh, diagnosis he had. And so he had surgery on Friday, and I, so I just wanted to let you know that. And um, the... Um, the Lord worked through that, and it, went, it came through with just great success. The doctors feel very confident about uh, the surgery, and uh, so he will do follow-up uh, in the coming weeks. So continue to pray for him because he's still in recovery. Um, I, uh, Richard told us that he was walking laps at the hospital yesterday, so uh, you pray for him. I know he would appreciate that. Um, uh, of course, I want to draw your attention to the financial update that's in here. We've had a fantastic year of what people have given, but of course we come to the end of it, and it requires all of us uh, to be able to uh, meet the needs of the church as God blesses it. So our goal for December is uh, $750,000 in giving, and uh, that's really in line with uh, what we expect would normally come in this, year, this time of year. And uh, we're, this, it tells you where we are right now, that's, so that's before today's offering. But we just encourage you here at the end of the year um, as, uh, to be faithful to the church. Continue to do that as you've always been. And I know God will bless in an incredible way. He has just done exceedingly above anything I could ever ask or imagine uh, in all areas of my life, but especially here. And I know that he'll continue to do that. So thank you for your giving in that, uh, in that way. Um, also, we have our deacons meeting tomorrow evening, so that means our deacon prayer team will gather at 530 and 1420. If you have a special prayer need and you want the, uh, the deacons to gather around you and pray for you, they will do that, 530 and 1420. Ben Harding's right here. If you can't be there and you want them to pray for something specific, all you have to do is just jot it down or come tell him, and so he'll make sure those guys will pray for that tomorrow evening. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. I um, hope that the Lord just blesses the next... Uh, several days as you prepare for Christmas, and I, I do hope that we do exactly what we say we'll do when we sing that song, and it's to prepare room for him in our hearts uh, in the celebration. So let me invite you to stand. I'll pray our benediction, and we'll be dismissed. Father God, thank you for the blessing of being together. Now, God, go with us. Father, help us to live in the power of the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray.